The Business of Agriculture podcast is brought to you by Land Trust. Did you know sportsmen spend over $5 billion annually in hunter and angler access fees? Land Trust is a platform that connects sportsmen with farmers and ranchers like you who have untapped profits just by providing access to their land. Go to landtrust.com slash BOA, as in business of agriculture, to see how much you might add to your bottom line. Greetings. Hey, thanks for joining us here on another fantastic episode of the Business of Agriculture. I'm your host, Damian Mason, but you already knew that. You heard that in the introduction. Got a great show for you today because I have a, another great guest. Her name is Tinia Pina. She's not your typical ag person, but she's in this agricultural business. She is the founder of a company called Renewable, and not Renewable, Renewable. And we're going to talk about what that is. We're going to talk about what it does. We're going to talk about, is this a future? Is this um, capitalizing on sort of environmentalism and more of an awareness of agriculture by what I'd call more mainstream urban and suburbia uh, people? That's what we're talking about today with Tinia. And uh, we're going to get right to it. Tinia. What the heck is Renewable? I come across it. I look at your website. I'm like, this is interesting. This is kind of ag. It's kind of off the beaten path of what I would call ag, but you're out here doing this. Tell me about it. Thank you. Well, first of all, thanks for having me here on your show, Damian. Really excited to kind of, you know, share what we do to perhaps a, maybe a different audience. Um, you know, what we do is we source unrecoverable produce waste from food manufacturers, distributors, and processors. We receive this raw material as a free resource for us. And within 24 hours, we turn it into a platform of sustainable technologies for indoor farming, also known as controlled environment agriculture or soilless farming. So what do I mean by that? Essentially, what we're doing is we're making nutrients in phosphate and nitrate form to be water soluble using a process of pasteurization and, and um, a biological process that allows for these water soluble compounds to be comparable to how they're delivered to the plants um, as they would be in synthetic or conventional mineral salts. So okay. Let's let's get back here. Um, yeah. Let's get back here. By the way, I like I like it. Very enthusiastic. I like it. I like it. Unrecoverable food waste. So, um, am I to understand like maybe there's um a, a, a Del Monte, whatever, some some uh, company that puts product in a can or in a frozen package or whatever. They make they make French fries, whatever. And then, are you taking like scraps? Uh, are you taking stuff that can't be packaged? What's the product you start with? You're exactly right. We focus on upstream, so non-post-consumer um, vegetative waste. To give you an example, think of broccoli, cauliflower, peas, carrots. That has been not of value or would be disposed of by a food manufacturer, maybe perhaps by quality control. And where we're able to provide value is given that we can operate in such a small footprint, we can either be as close either on site to these facilities or within close proximity, oftentimes providing an alternative to landfills or composting. Okay. So like, so like, are you saying that a truckload of broccoli comes in uh, every, uh, you know, every six hours to some processing facility, bird's eye, whatever, that puts it into a, a frozen package. And then there's some of it that's spoiled or it uh, it's got some blemish or something like that. And then it gets sorted, uh, sorted off the side. It's, it's in the scrap pile. Is that what I'm talking about? You're exactly right. Okay. So you grab all this stuff um, from these places. 
where are these places? Because you talked about small footprint. It seems to me that um, these places are, of course, California, where we do a lot of produce. Where are these places and how, how does it go from there? Just because I love the process. Yeah, so we're headquartered in New York City, but our facility, which is only 6,300 square feet, is in upstate New York in Rochester. We work with a national partnered hauler that already has access to some of the largest supermarkets and manufacturers around the U.S. And so we tap their uh, supply chain of organic waste. And the value to them is that we can be a more environmentally friendly off taker for their waste stream. Okay, so this stuff comes from how far does your stuff come from, Tanya? Good point. So it's usually within like 50 to 100 miles. We try to keep it as local as possible because we don't want to add to the carbon emissions associated with hauling. Okay. So the stuff's coming from within an hour's drive of your facility in New York. That's correct. And then um, it, it comes to you and you, what happens once it gets to your place? Yeah, so we we essentially process it immediately just to try to keep it within 24 hours to prevent any type of um, vermin or, or odors. But within an enclosed area, we pasteurize it. So we subject it to 175 degrees and within 30 minutes to make sure it's a, a, a high efficacy pathogen kill step. And then after that, that's where our trade secret is pretty much involved. We do use a biological process that does not include microbes to make those compounds that I was speaking about, nitrates and phosphates, into a water-soluble format. And after that, it's essentially gone through one more step of a pathogen kill step. We then do microbial testing, nutrient analysis testing to make sure that what's on the label is actually within the jug or bottle that it's contained and it's prepared for fulfillment. Okay. So this goes into this, this stuff. Now it's, it's broken down. Essentially you're taking vegetable byproduct waste and making it into a fertilizer type of product. And it's not chemically derived. So it's a naturally derived fertilizer type of product. It goes into a jug. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And that, that particular product is our liquid organic hydroponic nutrients. It's called a way we grow. So it's not suited for soil in the sense that it could be used for soil. There's certainly a, a pathway to, for field farmers to use it. Um, but we do focus on the indoor controlled environment farmers, um, of which I can definitely expand on that later if you'd like. I do want you to do that. So you take you take the stuff and put it in this jug and then it goes to, uh, yeah, tell me now where it goes from there. Because are we talking about uh, mom and pop with a hydroponic tomato greenhouse? Are we talking about bigger scale, um, you know, huge indoor vertically vertical farming? What are we talking about? Yeah, so we basically service the market as small as a 500 square foot or 2,500 square foot micro farm. And think of your shipping container business model that's been starting to populate around the country or your mom and pop uh, independently owned greenhouse all the way up to an enterprise level farm, such as an app harvest, where they have maybe 140 acres or sometimes 400 acres of just enclosed greenhouse space. The reason why we focused on this niche is because it's incredibly challenging for their systems, which are often sterilized. They use just mineral salts to keep a very consistent um, salt-based cultivation system. But when anytime you're adding biologicals or anything that is naturally derived, whether it's 
chicken litter or backwono liquid fertilizer, it tends to contribute to biofilm and can lead to food safety uh, pathogen risks. So what we've done is we've removed the challenges associated with that so that the plants can have enough oxygen to be able to survive and get the nutrients from an, uh, a nutrient source that is sourced from plant extracts from our, our waste stream in a similar or consistent format as they would with the synthetic industry substitutes, which are mineral salts. Uh, that's interesting. Okay, so you spoke a lot there about, Tinia, where this stuff goes. So we've got these, these um, indoor agricultural systems, like you said, uh, and you mentioned a container. Uh, to the person that's out here in Nebraska that's a you know, broad acre farmer that's listening right now, they're like, what, what's she talking about? Real quickly, that's a, more of an urban trend, I'd say, than, uh, than, than rural. What, tell us about that real quickly. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So you're, you're exactly right. People are using 40-foot freight shipping containers that one would normally ship uh, overseas goods, and they're retrofitting it to grow food year-round. I do want to give a little bit more context because we're working on a, a really innovative project in Glens Falls, New York, which is a, another rural example where we're taking um, – 300 square feet within an existing underutilized commercial or industrial warehouse and trying to prove that we can essentially help field or traditional farms diversify their income by growing more higher value specialty crops in these indoor environments. So hopefully I'd love to share with you at a later time, Damien, if we're successful in proving that business model out. Yeah, that's cool. So you've got customers that are either operating in a retrofitted storage, uh, sorry, uh, transport container, or all the way up to multiple acres of uh, indoor facility. And they buy this stuff because, as you said, if I bring in chicken litter or guano, whatever, that's an animal-derived stuff, but also I'm introducing bacteria and I'm introducing um, uh, potentially pathogens. You're saying the benefit of your product is it's been cooked. Uh, and so it's got the new, it's cooked fertilizer. Am I right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Without compromising or reducing the nutrient value, what we've seen is there are other organic products that can be used for hydroponic systems. They're oftentimes not cost effective, which is why these farms relegate to mineral salts, because they require the supplementation of very expensive microbes. And we just deliver a lot of value in our product without the dependence of these microbes. All right. So you got this product that goes there. So um, on your website, I saw something that looks like a little, it's a gallon, like it's like something the size of a, a milk jug. Uh, if you're taking this to a large scale indoor facility, they're going to need sure as hell more than a, a gallon of the stuff. So um, how, how are they getting it? Are you putting it in, in drums? We do. Yeah. 55 gallon drums or 250 up to 330 totes. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, 250 gallon uh, container or, or tote uh, shuttle. Um, so this is an interesting thing and you don't have, you know, I'm a farm kid with a degree in agricultural economics and I live out here on a farm. I think about these kinds of things. You're not from my background. How did this come about? Yeah, you know, um, I am originally from Virginia uh, and went to Virginia Tech, majored in information technology, moved up to New York immediately after and worked in financial services for roughly seven years. Um, my unique interest in just agriculture and trying to be as sustainably resilient as possible, especially given the high temperatures we're all experiencing uh, globally, was because I, I wanted to have a way for us to reclaim a lot of the nutrients from this 
a, a growing renewable waste stream, which is uh, unrecoverable food waste, and taking it so that we can achieve three things for you know our market, which are indoor farms or soilless farms, and that is increase their profitability by growing in the organic category, reducing their emissions by using localized recovered waste streams as a nutrient source, and three, increasing the nutritional value of their produce. So if we can continue to show that we're adding compounds, making beta-glucans more available to the consumer by way of using our product or increasing the vitamin B, K, and C, for example, these are all data points we're still measuring. That was really what emboldened me to start this. And, you know, right now we're focused on indoor ag, but I, if we're successful, and I certainly dream and hope we do as we scale, we want to be able to translate that value to, you know, row crops and, and broad stream agriculturalists as well. Um, you started it, what, six or seven years ago? Your LinkedIn profile calls you uh, the founder of an ag tech startup, uh, and it was about six or seven years ago. Am I right? That's correct. Yeah. Do you still call this an ag tech company? I'd call it a, I'd call it a recycling company. I'd call it, I mean, it could be a lot of things, which makes me wonder, what do your customers feel like they're buying? Are they buying, are they buying recyclables? Are they buying fertilizer? Are they buying... Um, they're buying environmental improvement. I mean, there's a lot of different things here that you're kind of almost on the verge of pitching. And it's uh, it's it's not completely clear, but it could be a bunch of things. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because where, where they do all seem to gravitate in terms of the messaging and what resonates with them most is they want to operate closed-loop operation. And so first analyzing the mineral salts as well as the substrate or what we call grow media in in field agriculture, you have soil, but in these soilless farms, they're using cocoa core, peat, and rock wool, and we have an alternative for those as well. So they they really look at from the inputs to the outputs, how can they be best in terms of resource efficiency and closing the loop? And so I think we we both address a, a we, the, we both address basically providing environmental stewardship which all of these farms are very passionate about doing, sometimes don't know the skill or aren't aware of the mechanisms to achieve that. But also we are a recycler. And I think the recycling con context is more relevant to the regions that we serve, especially those that lack composting infrastructure. Um, but for the farm and our customers, you know, it's kind of all in one. And you're right in that there's different angles that our business resonates with. Um, we really are trying to be more intelligent and listening. What is the most of value to how they sell their products as well? Uh, by the way, there's folks that aren't as familiar with indoor agriculture. I did an episode all about indoor agriculture a year or so ago. You just mentioned a soilless, and you know, and my 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 average ag person would be like soilless agriculture. Well, of course, we're familiar, um, hydroponic, whatever. Explain that again. These systems, what are they producing? Like one of your customers, give me one of your bigger customers. What are they producing in those indoor agriculture setups? And like you said, rock wool, and you mentioned something else. What's the medium? Yeah, so I'll give you an example, 100 Acres, which is right outside of Wisconsin, they are producing leafy greens, so an assortment of, of leafy lettuce and herbs um, and Asian varieties. They're growing these plants out of rock wool, which is a stone wool, heavily compacted and oftentimes shipped from places as far as the Middle East and Russia, um, but incredibly carbon intensive to produce. If not rock wool, then they're growing their seedlings out of peat. Um, or cocoa core, which are our source from the environment. Cocoa, 
core. Yeah. So they're the fibers that are basically um, extracted or taken from a coconut shell. Okay. And so these, these, um, uh, these, this is what's in a tray uh, or, or in this, in this indoor ag facility, the pitch there at the Wisconsin place is they're providing year round greens. And this, so the idea there is these aren't getting trucked in from Yuma, Arizona. And so you're saving the carbon footprint and you're getting greens from here in Wisconsin year round. That's the pitch that they sell to their customers, right? You're exactly right. I want to add two other things there. So by selling and producing more locally, they're preserving the nutrient value to the customer because it's not um, experiencing food mileage shipping from California oftentimes. And two, you know, that emissions reductions uh, is just adding to their sustainability that a lot of these farms that they're servicing or supplying Whole Foods or Kroger's, for example, are being more accountable to from an overall sustainability perspective. Got it. Okay. <clears throat> so they buy your product and they're buying it in 300 gallon shuttles, presumably it's because uh, they're not buying little, uh, they're not buying little jugs. And then they take it and put it in their, uh, in their system and it goes into water. You're exactly right. It's diluted in water. And then, so every day that they're watering the plants, there's a little bit of your product in that water. Yes. And it's almost similar to a drip irrigation line in the field. The difference is, is that it's just the, the system setup that allows for the recirculation of this water um, throughout these farms. There's nuances that they have to control along with temperature, humidity, air circulation. There's a lot of sensitivities relating to these parameters that they have to optimize for to make sure that plant health is intact throughout, throughout that entire uh, grow, grow cycle. And yeah, um, your customers, um, can you give me a name? I mean, would I even know the names of these? Is there a product that I've ever eaten that would have come from one of your customers? Um, I don't think so. I mean, if, cause you're based out, out of where, Damien? I'm in Indiana and I'm in Arizona. It depends on the time of the year, but uh, you're, you're, so does the stuff end up in the grocery store? It does. Yeah, it does. And if not in grocery store, then some of these farms sell direct to consumers through farmers markets or online distribution. Okay. Um, Food waste. I tell my agricultural audiences, this is a huge topic. It's not getting enough attention. All of the discussion around environmentalism, you know, I I get mad as a landowner. There's uh, constant calls for controlling what I'm allowed to do on my property. I'm like, you know, if we want to make a big impact on the environment, there's two things that don't get enough attention. First off is plastic. About 230 pounds of plastic is discarded each year per American. Um, We should be doing a better job by that because that stuff never goes away. Uh, And food waste. We waste globally, and even here in the U.S., about a third of what we produce uh, restaurant waste, uh, you know, dumping it down the garbage disposal, throwing it in the trash, it spoils infrastructure. There's all kinds of problems with this. You are tackling food waste. Your thoughts on food waste, first off. And um, secondly, can we get to where we don't have any? Great question, especially the latter. Um, it's interesting. Civil Eats did an article today that was really parsing down and getting to the minutia of how much does our global food system contribute in terms of emissions. And they, they basically extrapolated on a last report that was done in 2018, indicating that our global food system is responsible. And this is inclusive of food waste. It's also inclusive of our fertilizers, such as mineral salts. It contributes 16 billion metric tons of greenhouse gases. And so, you know, we see food waste 
uh, handled very differently around the country. And it's driven by how large the composting infrastructure is to handle the amounts of food waste. Um, We've encountered a a food distributor, for example, that was paying $50,000 just to send his food waste, which was being landfill bound currently. So, you know, where we kind of focus on is like the, the food waste in metropolitan areas because of the density of the people living there. However, we've gotten a lot of um, inbound inquiries from farms, whether they're sweet potatoes, apple orchards. Another one was just general potatoes. Um, how can we take their peelings? And essentially, you know, another aspect that we provide is a method for these farms to be able to take their residual crop residue, so post-harvest, and turn that into a biostimulant that can help these farms reduce their input costs as well as their disposal costs. You know, to your last point, in terms of will we ever truly be able to get rid of all food waste, I'm not confident to say yes to that yet. Um, The biggest impact is not even the the area that we're focusing on right now. The biggest impact needs to be made on the post-consumer side. So the food waste that's at our residences and also the food service, and unfortunately, we're just something scalable that's cost-effective and affordable for municipalities. I just haven't seen it yet. Yeah, well, it's a lot of things I talk about, by the way, Uh, dear listener and viewer, I talk about food waste in my book, Food Fear, which is all about the past, present and future of the business of agriculture. I talk about food waste and it's 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 a single big, huge environmental problem. I mean, uh, while while there might be political uh, pushes to tell us that we're not allowed to eat cheeseburgers again, if we tackled food waste. Um, cheeseburgers are frankly down the list a long, long way of what uh, is contributing problems. When you figure 35% of what we produce is thrown out, it's a whole lot of resources that we spent time, money, transporting, using, and, and all that. Not to mention <clears throat> portion size um, at the restaurants uh, have contributed to obesity and also waste. You know, they bring uh, three times as much uh, calories per plate as they did in the 1950s. Um, <clears throat> that's a little sidebar, by the way, Tenia. No, I think it's great. Tenia, so... Um, Money. All right. We got to ask. It's the business of agriculture podcast after all. And you're in business. Uh, you took a little, you took a little risk out here, man. Tell me about it. I mean, you're not an ag person. First off, is it working out? Is the money there? Yeah. You know, it, I took a lot of risk. (laughs) I was fortunate to uh, put some savings aside when I worked in finance and uh, kind of, we bootstrapped for a while, which is why it took us this amount of time. Do you have any investors to We do. I'll I'll tell you that we raised $1.8 million to date. Um, Most of the investors are activated and excited by the food waste component, but also the indoor ag, given the amount of, um, uh, you know, interest in that uh, due to the global challenges. I would say, you know, going back to your point, there's certainly a lot of innovation that's happening on the input side, um, whether it's nitrogen efficiencies using microbes or, and so, in terms of fundraising for your audience, considering that um, there's a lot of more investment opportunities on inputs, especially for the biologicals. And I say that whether it's biostimulants that can help reduce the usage of mineral salts, as well as um, just trying to help these farms uh, reduce their dependence on overall inputs in general. Um, lastly, I would say an area that 
could use more innovation, so more businesses starting to resolve this challenge and investment is the the nutrient wastewater side. So you know, capturing these these this wastewater, especially in field agriculture, and helping them recover it in a way that um, is not going to compromise the yields, but also just be able to kind of nutrient cycle. Um, there's certainly a, a lot of opportunity there. Are you going to be? Are you are you profitable yet? Not yet. So in the next six months, that is definitely um, our trajectory, though. Yeah. Are you being treated well? You're uh, you're a New York resident, uh, and you're not from ag, and now you're out here uh, in the business of agriculture. What's it What's it been like? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. It's certainly interesting. I mean, I think on the indoor side, it, it is it is people recognize that the diversity of new entrants to the space um, is welcome because they realize the surge of trying to make indoor growing, uh, especially given the temperatures that we're experiencing, economical for everyone. And, and the profitability for vertical farms still remains an open question. Um, I think tradition- Profitability for vertical, again, I've, I've done some research and I keep up with it because I see it as a trend. It's a trend that's got a lot of, it's got some political push. It's got some investor money push. There are people that, uh, um, that, that love to fund what they think is um, got a degree of environmental goodness. Um, mm -hmm. And, and you know, I'm all for it, but there is still the viability. It still probably is better to, cheaper to grow lettuce in Yuma, Arizona and truck it than it is probably to do some of these things. But I see a lot of interest in it also. And I guess that's what I'm wondering, is it, is it, your, your success is really kind of dependent on its success, right? Uh, yes. I mean, we also sell the product and in, in some consumer kind of strategic deals as well. Um, so we have exposure to consumer as well as commercial farms. But to add to your, your point, you know, the profitability, not for greenhouses, greenhouses, because they're leveraging the, the heat and the sun intensity of solar or just sun in general, um, they don't have to encounter the same 50 to 75 percent energy costs of the vertical farms that we're seeing. And so I haven't, I, I wish I could tell you on a per square foot basis, how greenhouse measures against um, vertical farming from an economic uh, uh, viability standpoint. I don't have that yet. And it's something that we always pay attention to. Um, but, you know, I think a lot still remains to be proven. However, um, given the interest in trying to reduce those costs and introduce efficiencies solely around climate control. So measuring heat, light intensity, humidity, and just being smarter about energy usage and energy management. I think it, it, the, the amount of time to increase those efficiencies and, and perhaps profitability per square foot will come this year or next is remains to be answered. Smart guy. Uh, I did an internship for back when I was a 22, 23 year old kid. Sat down the last day I was with him for the summer before I went back to my last semester in college. And looking back, I realized that this takes uh, this takes a certain amount of um, um, this takes a certain amount of uh, character to do this. He said, "Damien, you've been with me for all summer. What am I doing wrong?" And you know what? I learned. I mean, I didn't. I, I told him. Because I was the outsider and I realized, and I was honest and I liked the man. Now it's taught me a very valuable lesson that it's powerful to do that uh, and, and have the, have the 
this thickness of skin to be able to take it. You've been in ag sort of now. I mean, it's a peripheral, I mean, but it's still. What are we doing wrong? Tinia Pina, smart young woman, educated at another great land grant school, Virginia Tech University, business person. What are we doing wrong? And that's a good question. You know, I think I think being open, right? So because that's the best part is that I want you to be open, and you also are from you're from not the background, and then you come into it, and you know, give me your thoughts. Yeah, you know, with this Glens Falls project, what we really want to show traditional farms, family farms, especially in New York, where agriculture in general, I think it's first led by dairy, then um, just I think beef is a second, but agriculture is the fourth largest economy in New York. I really am trying to keep the dialogue open to show that traditional farming can have the benefits of indoor farming and not be adversarial. And let me give you a little bit more context there. There's a huge debate. There's been a lot of um, protests and petitions against field organic soil farms. And I totally give respect to the years, the energy and the blood, sweat and tears invested in getting USDA organic certified produce grown in soil with that certification. Mm -hmm. But what I just hope that that community understands is if they're open to having greenhouses or other types of indoor structures that can also grow organic certified produce because not only does that diversify their crop type but it also diversifies their revenue stream and third most important is it increase it extends their crop season and so i'm trying to keep that narrative strong because it's it's been very you know adversarial and and it shouldn't be that way and i think if we can just prove that then we can increase our domestic crop production and really reduce our dependence on imports. That should be the main topic. I feel not spoken enough. So you think that uh, first off, it's not adversarial and, and, you know, ag has this issue. I mean, this goes back to the settling of the West. The cattle ranchers fought the sheep uh, herders, uh, the, <laughs> the, the crop people fight the livestock people, the, um, uh, you know, I had an interview the other day here that's going to be on this uh, this episode or another episode about plant-based protein. And we're not talking about impossible burgers or whatever. We're talking about just uh, pulses and things like this. There's always this thing. But I agree with you. In fact, I think that indoor agriculture is a nice compliment. It used to be that out here in my part of the world, you were a crop farmer and you also had a hog barn, you know, whatever, diversification of income. What if it's that you're a farmer and you also have an indoor component of your agricultural system. Seasonality then comes into play, seasonal year-round income. So I agree with you about that. Um, you didn't, you're, you're being too PC. It's a function of your generation or where you're from. You still didn't tell me what we're doing wrong. You just played, you, you played, you softballed it. Oh, that, that wasn't intentional. Let me make sure I just didn't get, I didn't miss it. What we're doing wrong in the sense of, um, hmm, let me think about that for a minute. I think Yes. Okay. Okay. And this may come a little bit from perhaps I, you know, I'm, I'm not the typical profile. Right. And I think just kind of witnessing, I, I went to a farm bureau uh, convention a year ago. I think it was in no, no, two years ago, Austin, Texas. It's pretty insular. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of kind of prejudices just, and it could be city folk against rural folk. And I really don't look at it that way. I view people as people and, and, and comfortable talking to anybody of any status. Um, and so I think we're just allowing our, our, you know, um, 
preconceived kind of Beliefs. assumptions, beliefs, yeah. thank you, <laughs> to block out these conversations and to block out any opportunity for collaboration or whatever it is. Um, so I, I, I would say that, I, and it kind of goes back to the open open point that I made earlier. Yeah, I guess uh, the uh, what, of course, you're talking about is that adaptation is is happening and you know like i said there's a reason i've had indoor ag indoor farming people on here a couple of times because i believe there's a place for it right now it's does not it's not generally a viable profitable business model but the reality is many things in agriculture subsist that damn near break even you know a, a new hog facility is extremely capital intensive and you make money on hogs sometimes. And so, I mean, really, that's kind of the case with food production overall. But, yeah, I think that what we um, uh, what you talked about was um, an adversarial sort of position that happens a lot in different sects of production agriculture in North America. And um, the reality is, <clears throat> you know, I've been guilty of it also. I've bashed on organic, not organic farmers, because I'm friends with organic farmers, but about the organic lobby. They they are not against using misinformation to tell consumers, oh, this food is healthy and that food over there got sprayed with a uh, uh, pesticide three months ago. It's unhealthy. Well, that's not actually scientifically accurate. I mean, a, a tomato that was sprayed with pesticide three months ago doesn't have a different nutritional profile. Some of those things have always bothered me. Um, talking about that. What else did we not cover? Tinea, Pina, founder of Renewable. What else did we not cover that we should? Um, you know, I, I think, I th you know what, it would be nice to know, Damien, what is most of interest to your audience from an input side? You know, I see a lot of these technologies on nitrogen efficiency and using nitrogen fixation to achieve that. But is that really um, being adopted by farms at the rate that perhaps startups and some of these venture back companies are claiming there's a market for it? Yeah, it looks to me, and, and I'm not the agronomic expert here, um, it looks to me like we're getting better very quickly about utilization of resources. You know, I go to meetings all over North America and I speak at these things and I make sure I sit in on a couple of other sessions because you get a lot smarter that way. About... Um, We've been forever throwing nitrogen out there because it was fairly cheap to do. And, you know, NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, whatever. And that's the big three macros. And then I sat on this session a year or so ago and they said, you've got more than adequate amounts of those resources. But if you don't have these other things that help the uptake. So we're talking about cover cropping that brings those nutrients up to the usable surface of the topsoil where it can actually be absorbed by the plant uh, using macronutrients to then tinea make those micro macro, micronutrients to make the macros more readily uh, uptakeable. Um, so we're doing better on those things. And I believe we will uh, for a couple of reasons. First off, environmental sustainability and also from cost. You know, economics still have to drive it. Sustainability is a neat word, but you can only be sustainable if you are live to fight another day. And that, to do that, you have to have money as you're learning there at Renewable. Um, anything that you want to tell the audience about your company, about what you're doing, about the business of agriculture from your perspective? Oh, no. Appreciate the, the spotlight, Damien. Uh, so the company's renewable. You can visit us at re-nublee.com. Uh, we'll soon be posting information through this 12-month 
pilot or a project that I was mentioning in Glens Falls, New York, really showing and proving how we can help traditional field agriculture also participate in this growing segment of agriculture specific to specialty crops. Um, so I think that's really of most interest to your audience. And if I can be helpful of any way, I always look at our info at renewable.com email inbox. Happy to always um, answer any questions afterwards. Yeah, and I think a big pitch, honestly, and I, I hope you, you hear it here is that um, pulling pulling food waste out of the system and preventing it from going to landfill and all that, it's a it's a growing concern. And I see it being a, an opportunity for you to really make some hay with your company. So thank you so much. Her name's Tinia Pina, and she just told you how to contact her. My name's Damian Mason, and we had a nice little chat here about something that we don't hear as much about, but I think we're going to hear a lot more about taking stuff that's being wasted and utilizing it for a different sect, a growing category in production agriculture, meaning the indoor space, and also telling a good environmental story. So my name is David Mason. My name is Tinia Pina. And check her out. Go to her website. It's a neat story. It's got neat stuff. And uh, until next time, thanks for being here, by the way. It's the business of agriculture. Thank you for tuning into the Business of Agriculture podcast sponsored by Land Trust. Land Trust partners with farmers and ranchers to capture pure profit from sportsmen seeking new experiences and places to hunt and fish. Land Trust built the platform and does the marketing. You maintain 100% control of access and activities, and you set the rules. There's no cost or obligation when you list, and the next 10 Business of Agriculture listeners who go to landtrust.com BOA are eligible for a gift worth over $2,000.